0: And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those
1: boys. Said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes, good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the
2: team, second captain, first captain, whatever. During the summer just gone, a couple of Hollywood blockbuster movies had a resurgence on Netflix Denzel Washington's 2004 hit Man on Fire and the 2014 flick Ride Along, starring wow. Kevin Hart and Ice Cube. Boat made something of a comeback, racking up millions of streams. Those millions weren't enough to break into the top five most-watched Netflix films worldwide for the week ending July 23rd. That was the week The Deepest Breath, written and directed by Irish filmmaker Laura McGann, landed in at number five, watched by 4.6 million people around the world Jesus. in that week alone. The critical <laughs> acclaim has followed. I know, Murph, they're big numbers. That was just the first week. Yeah. The critic claim has followed. Just last night it picked up two awards at the Critics' Choice Documentary Award Ceremony in New York and with the deadline approaching this week for consideration for the Oscars. Well, I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, but I just hope Laura has filled out the relevant application forms at this point. You're welcome to the show. Hey, fellas. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Owen, how are you? There's actually more Hollywood royalty vanquished last night, Ciarán. Go on. This is, actually good. this is bittersweet for you because I know you're a massive fan of The Deepest Breath and we're talking to Laura today. But you know one of the movies They beat out for Best Sports Documentary Or one of the shows I should say uh, Go on Welcome to Wrexham ah. I know you're a fan I know you're a Ryan Reynolds fan Well yeah. no I but mean Welcome to I, Wrexham Was among the
3: I am a fan one, But not to the extent Where I've actually started To watch season 2 Of the programme Even though it's been out now For about 2 <laughs> months But you know I was, I was I was, waiting for The number of episodes To build up So that I could watch You know I could, I could binge watch As opposed to have
2: to wait A week for yeah. each Subsequent episode So that's my excuse, anyway. Deepest Breath* also won Best Cinematography, which will not shock any of you who have seen it, and it was nominated in two other categories: Best Documentary Feature and Best Score. I'm not joking about the Oscars, Murph. Without wanting to get anyone's hopes yep. up, these Critics' Choice Awards are, you know, they're they're a big deal in their own right. They're
3: uh, yes, they're a, a key staging post. Towards award season, on and uh, if you were to draw a line between the Critics' Choice, who wins as the Critics' Choice, and who gets nominated and who wins on Oscar night, uh, you would see quite a little, quite a bit of uh, crossover. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this is this is the realm uh, in which people are now speaking about uh, the deepest breath. Uh, it is there is Oscar buzz. On, if you if you just stay quiet just it's, for a second
2: you just hear the <laughs> i don't have that phrase yeah i'll say quiet sorry yeah go <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, well listen it's only november On, you know you, you you're uh, the buzz yeah. will turn into a it's a, low to- a tornado of noise but as of
2: right now it's only november but that's what you're hearing on <laughs> <laughs> we spoke to Laura late last week, just before those awards were won, which is why uh, you're not going to hear me asking her about winning them. But I, I do reference the nominations at the time. And uh, now that it's beginning to clean up these award ceremonies, today is the day we will reveal a world exclusive second captain's link with wow. the deepest breath. I'm doing it, Murph. <laughs> I'm doing
3: it. Well, I mean, it, jumping it, it's jumping off. It's good news for us. I mean, uh, if if Laura could turn back the hands of time and well, listen, I've, I've already said too much. On <laughs> we'll get into it.
2: Yeah, Speaking of saying too much, just before I launch into this, we did mention to World Servers members and on social media that we would be talking about this movie this week. We will be talking about some of the things that happened in it. So we would recommend if you don't know the story already and you want to keep it that way for now, then pause the podcast. We're not going anywhere. You can watch it on Netflix and come back to hear our conversation. I'll even leave, I'll leave a couple of seconds here for you just to find the pause button. Now, if you're still with us, I'm going to assume you've either watched the movie or you're okay with us telling you the story of The Deepest Breath. It explores the world of free diving in which competitors compete to dive as deep as they can below the surface of the water without using any breathing apparatus. So they have to hold their breath as they go. The story revolves around two central characters, Alessia Zecchini, a world-class freediver from Italy, and Stephen Keenan from Dublin, who made a name for himself as a safety diver in the sport. He achieved legendary status in 2013 when he saved the life of the world champion Alexei Molchanov. Steve and Alessia were in a relationship in 2017. Steve died while saving Alessia, who'd gotten into difficulty during a dive at the Notorious Blue Hole in Dahab, in Egypt. I'll play you a clip that gets across a little bit about the appeal of the sport, or certainly what it feels like to be under that water, holding one's breath, but also the dangers involved. It starts with Alessia speaking about what it feels like to dive at those depths.
4: The deeper I'm diving, the pressure compresses the air in my lungs until uh, my lungs are the size of my fist. After thirty meters, the pressure pushing me down. It's called the freefall, and this is for me the best part. It feels like you are flying. The silence. It's unique. It's like being in the least quiet place on the earth. There's a surrender element to it. It's like a high. But getting stuck to the bottom of the sea can be scary, even for freedivers. You have to break this deep meditation because coming back to the surface, that's when the work really starts. You've got to swim the length of a 70-story skyscraper. Swimming against all that pressure, it's like swimming against a current. By then, your oxygen supply already dwindled. You're kicking hard, so your heart rate's increasing, burning that oxygen quicker. You're now getting to the point where you don't have enough oxygen to keep the systems going. That's when you can have a blackout.
0: brain basically just turns itself
2: off. It doesn't mean that your brain is dying, but it's kind of like a safety mechanism. The brain preserves itself by shutting off all its functions. And from that moment, you still
0: have one or two minutes before brain damage would start to occur. If you don't have the right kind of medical attention, can go downhill pretty quick. It's
2: definitely not something to be taken lightly. Yeah, even listening to that, it gets you back into... I'd imagine for some people they watched this at the time, probably a few months back, and might have only started thinking about it again. Now it really immerses you... Again, in that kind of, in the feel of the movie and the, the sounds of it. The cinematography, obviously, is hard to get across in podcast form, Murph. But as I mentioned, it's a, it's not too surprising to people that that particular, that they've won an award mm. for the cinematography in this. It's just, um, it's extraordinary stuff for you. Yeah, well, the cinematography and the score kind of go hand in
3: hand, really, you know. Um, because, like, to see, like, for me, I am not a person who enjoys the sea (laughs) Uh, you know I'm I am fearful of the sea for other people it is a place of like solitude and extreme calm and you know watching it and listening to how uh, Alessia speaks about it there and just how how the sound of the of the movie is 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 put across you would like to be as at home under the sea as these people are uh, when you see how beautiful it is, how it's the last quiet place on earth, as she says, says in that clip there. I mean, for like for the majority of us, we watched it on Netflix, but actually my brother saw it at the Sheffield uh, Documentary Festival uh, last July. Mm. It wasn't quite the UK premiere. I think the premiere was on the night before he saw it, but he said on the big screen, it was just an unbelievably immersive experience. And I, I could absolutely understand that as well. The... Um, Uh, that for all that it comes across on your laptop or on your TV screen in a cinema screen it was
2: just another level altogether it does look and sound absolutely beautiful yeah well Ken is at home on the sea Ken but I'd imagine free diving would be uh, a step too far for you surface of the sea huh (laughs) that'll do you you stay in and around the surface yeah yeah
1: yeah the uh, the I mean what they do in this film is crazy it's just it's just incredible. I mean, you, you know, the 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 image that stays with me from the film is the eyes of these divers, the the resurfacing divers after they um you know, they've been down to like 100 or, or more meters. Um I mean, it takes 3 minutes to you know, it, it takes it takes a long time to go down and to come back up. And uh, they've obviously been subject to this massive pressure. I mean, physically, this is a pretty extreme experience. And by the time they have returned to the surface, they've almost lost consciousness, or in some cases have. Mm-hmm. And it's just a crazy thing to see. Uh, you know, the, the level of danger in this is, is really, uh, it's, it's just off the scale. Um I know my dad was watching it, but my dad had, used to be a diver, not a free diver. He was like a, um, you know, breathing apparatus diver of various kinds, and I think he didn't. He 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 didn't have any time for this. He didn't have any time for free diving. Although I ch- I, I said I, I, I remembered vaguely that his he was like, "Well, what were they doing? This is mad stuff." Uh, and I checked again my mother was like Did it, what was his reaction to that was he kind of complaining about how, how mad it was and she was like yeah but you've got to remember anything that anyone does that he doesn't agree with is considered to be mad so there's a bit of that as well going on um, <laughs> so that was his that was his take on it but yeah, it's, um, ext-
2: oh no, it's extreme there's no doubt about it we'll hear Laura talk about that element of it as well and what the, why they go to those extremes but also you know, she will talk about the the safety procedures in place and all that sort of stuff as well. It is remarkable. If you've seen it, you'll know it if you haven't seen it and you're happy to hear about the conversation. We'll get into it now. The contributions, the contributors also, I should mention, some amazing contributors, notably Stephen's father, Peter, who just speaks so beautifully, so warm speaking about his son, who took a lot of left field choices in life, travelling to Farfung, flung places in search of meaning Stephen asked his dad at one stage if he was disappointed in him wandering the world searching for something he couldn't put his put his finger on but his dad I think was far from disappointed in him and actually says he's consoled by how he lived which was one of the more poignant and touching moments of the movie we will stop talking about it now and we'll allow you to hear from Laura McGann Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No of course not 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What
3: happened? It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade there's a world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
2: In the middle of the summer, just gone, there was a question I noticed popping up quite a lot in a lot of conversations I was having. Have you seen The Deepest Breath Yet on Netflix? It's unbelievable. This is one of those ones where I I felt like I watched it not long after its release. Already, I felt like the rest of the world had seen this thing and they were bang on. It is an incredible movie and it's a pleasure to talk to its writer and director, Laura McGann, today. Laura, how are you?
5: I'm good, thanks guys. Thanks for having me on here.
2: No, not at all. Did I'm you a big get the fan. S- <laughs> Did you get the sense... Once it got its Netflix release, there was a lot of word of mouth going on. A lot of people were talking about this.
5: Yeah, I suppose you know, as you know, a film that you, you you're I'd be in touch with. You know, I'm like, oh, people are watching it. That's good. You know, and then it seemed like, um, I suppose like everybody that I've ever met in my life, you know, got in touch to say they had seen it, and that was like has never happened before. You know, mm-hmm. so I was like, well, I think a lot of people have actually watched this. And um that's the beauty of that is the beauty of Netflix in a way. You know, every it's in everyone's house. And it's like 90 something countries around the world. Um so and it has that Irish connection, obviously, with Stephen um and Peter, and you know, a lot of it is set here. Um, but it was uh yeah, definitely it definitely seemed to catch people's imagination. And you know, like it it, it caught mine from the second i i heard about the story from the second i heard about the sport i was hooked so in a way like i wasn't surprised because i was like i'm with you you know i'm with you yeah. this is this is amazing yeah uh
3: so everyone that you've ever met watched the movie uh that still doesn't quite uh translate to one of the top five netflix movies around the world which is what it was uh in its opening week so have you any idea how many people have actually seen it like do you get like kind of granular data on just how big a top 5 Netflix movie actually is
5: um in the in an, uh, in the first um 28 days or so um it was upwards of 50 million accounts yeah
3: oh my god yeah yeah I that's know. unbelievable that is an extraordinary amount of people in it 28 is. days yeah yeah
2: what was that yeah, like for is. you those early days those those early weeks
5: a lot of this project has been from the very, very start kind of unbelievable.
2: Yeah. You
5: know, when I met Peter for the first time and we sat across the table from each other, we chatted for about an hour, and he at the at the, at the end of the meeting said, look, I have a couple of interviews with Stephen here on this pen drive, and he pass it over to me. I went home and I listened to it. It was like 15 hours of audio with Stephen talking about his adventures. And I, from that moment, it's been like it was just so incredible hearing his voice, hearing the stories that he told. Like it was like the best podcast, no offence, the best podcast you've ever <laughs> listened to, I was sitting there listening to his yeah. interviews. Um, and just from that moment on there has been It's been massive thing after massive thing, you know, like from the archive, finding the archive, A24 coming on board to working with some of the best, you know, producers in the world and cinematographers and editors, then for Netflix to come on board and then for 50 million people to watch it. It's just been like, it's been a lot of moments where it's kind of pinch yourself moments.
2: Interesting though, Laura, when you talk about it being an an Irish story in a lot of ways and it absolutely is the way you tell it it d- doesn't feel like that like i can't imagine a global audience feeling that this is a specifically irish thing is that the way that you wanted to was this designed for an international audience the more you thought about it the more you made it
5: very much so yeah this was mm-hmm. always designed for like everything that i do is designed for just people you know it's not like making yeah, you, you're going to be I
2: limiting your fun. your audience in your in your own no, head yeah yeah, yeah. No.
5: And a few people have asked me, like, oh, was it the Irish connection that got you interested? And it's not like, you know, we're all human beings, no matter where we're from. We're, we're all the same. And it was probably the Irish connection that, you know, I, I read it in the Irish Times. So that's why it was the Irish connection that kind of brought the story to me. Um, but yeah, I, it's I think we're there's only a few of us here. You know, you can't just make something mm. with it, for, for with Irish people in
3: mind. Uh, you've already mentioned kind of the archive and obviously there you know you see incredible stories that would make incredible documentaries every day in every newspaper probably um but you know you have in making a documentary you have to actually think okay well the story is great but like what do i actually show like what's on the screen what like what can you actually play here and just as you're watching uh the film like that 's what really strikes you, and that 's what keeps you hooked throughout the movie because you 're not thinking well i 'm hearing from one person and the only you know the the only way that this story is being told is through contemporaneous interviews, and so the whole I, like kind of cliffhanger moment of the that the movie builds up to uh, it works because you have all of this like huge store of archive i mean. Like like so much of Stephen's story is kind of pre, you know, your camera, your phone also being like, uh, you know, a HD camera. And yet there's still like the idea that he's like on a camcorder filming in Africa or, uh, you know, on like a really like uh, nearly antediluvian uh, or like, you know, like a really old style uh, camera phone or whatever. I mean, it's 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 crazy that you have so much footage of Stephen throughout his kind of earlier life.
5: Yeah. It absolutely is. And, and I suppose like, I suppose when Peter showed, gave me that audio, that was when I thought, right. Maybe we can tell this story in the moment. Maybe we don't have to be. And immediately I, I saw, right, if footage exists, you know, this is the this will be the best way to tell the story. In the moment, I would have been making observational films like the, the roller derby film that I made, Revolutions. It was I was I had to be there, standing there with the camera to capture it in the frame, and and we tried to do that as much as possible in that film, and and it was kind of that background that kind of made me feel. God, imagine if we could tell this story in that same way, and I, we didn't know if anything existed, um, and it was just a leap of faith. It was like this will be the best way to tell the story, and it came down to so after I I listened to Stephen's interviews, Peter then came to me and he said. I've actually a bag of tapes. I don't know what's on them here. Have a look at those. And in them was the camcorder covered in dust. Um, Just like muck and stuff. Like not because it was sitting on the thing, but just because it was, it had been places. Yeah. And there was about 20 or 25 tapes, little DV tapes that Stephen shot. And I took them out, put them into Stephen's camera, rewound them because he had just recorded on them and put them into the box so many years later, I opened the box, put it back into the camera. It was even just saying that now, like it just gives me goosebumps because there was an intimacy to it. You know, mm. there was a there was just something really kind of um, just kind of unreal about it, but then really very real as well. So rewound it and then I'd watch it and you'd see and I'd already listened to the interviews at this point, And then all of a sudden I started to see all the images from the stories he had told. And I was like, oh my God, we can be here with him. We can be going through the Congo, getting stuck in lorries. like all the stories. It should really be something actually, you know, of its own, you know, Yeah, Stevens should. should, People would really enjoy that. Just sitting and listening to him, and then all of a sudden, you're getting to see it, and it was all coming to life. You know, you listen to it. You know, they say like a book is better than a film because you get to conjure it in your own head, and that's what I had already done. And then getting to see the real images was just like an unbelievable, amazing experience. Um, And then, so that was kind of incredible. And then then he had um, there was there was old family archive from from um Stephen's childhood on um Super Eight and old VHS actually sorry not Super Eight VHS tapes. Um and then it was the same with Alessia. Alessia's family had a camcorder knocking around as well, filmed a ton and um there was a a guy, uh oh crikey, Stefano is his first name. Um and he had filmed with Alessia for about, about eight years and had had filmed interviews with her before and after events and lots of gorgeous observations Like they were traveling all over the world uh, with the Italian team when she got going and uh, when she was 18. So it took a long time. Like it was two years of, uh, it was more than two years because I was doing a bit before our archive producer came on board. It was probably four years of reaching out, hearing, okay, such so t- hearing stories like when Stephen saved Alexei Malchinov, you know, the Russian diver. Hearing this story from everyone, this was the story that everybody had heard. God, was there somebody filming it? Was there somebody there? And the community themselves, the free diving community, they're like skaters. You know, they it's a niche sport. There's always someone with a handful of GoPros. There's always like a crew making a like a documentary about the weekend competition. Um and we'd about with we about a hundred providers of archive um for the whole film. And they're all kind of people like, you know, amateur filmmakers who ha just a whole lot of hard drives in their wardrobe and you're talking to them and he's like, Yeah, I think I filmed that and you're like, please don't tell me you deleted it. Because you know mm. the way you'd be back yeah. in the day, like you'd be deleting files to put more stuff on to make space or whatever. <laughs> And it was all there. It was just all there. And like, um, yeah, especially there was just moments that uh, with the Alexi Rescue, one of our associate producers had to go to Kalamata, do a free diving course with this guy. And because, you know, because it was COVID as well, all, all of these people, right, are usually pinging around the world to one from one exotic location to another. And of course, they're all at home. So and with nothing to do. And I think that's half the reason why we got most of the archive, because they you know, they were like, Oh sure I like no better time than now to go in do all that old footage. Yeah, exactly. Um so there was a lot lots of factors that kind of came together to make it possible.
2: Did you know any more than the rest of us did about this world of free diving before you jumped into it?
5: Nothing. No, I knew nothing about it. I had to Google what is free diving yeah. um, on the first day when I read the article. I was like, what's free diving? Googled it and spent the rest of the day just watching videos and holding my breath and going, right, she's swimming. Surely me sitting here on the chair, I can hold my breath for the length of time that she's holding her breath and swimming. And then I, it, obviously I couldn't. But it, I, I then started to count, oh, how many breaths am I going to have to take and her no breaths, Wow! you know, in this video. And and I was just immediately, I was like, well, this would look amazing on the big screen. Like, this is made for it. The colours, the light. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it was, a lot of it was shot by freedivers as well. So a lot of the stuff that we're used to seeing underwater is a shop is scuba divers. So they can't move very fast. And they, well, basically they can't move very fast. Yeah. So with a freediving cinematographer... You can be move, you're as free as a bird under there or a fish. You know, uh they're up and down, they're all around, you know. So there's that movement with the diver. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Um and so that was kind of the start of it. Yeah, and I and I started people it was after the accident, you know. It was I read about Stephen's accident. Um and some friends of Stephen had posted it was Dan Verhoeven. He's one of these free diving cinematographers. He had posted a photo essay all about Stephen. Um and and a couple of months later, I reached out to him first because I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to reach out to any of the family or anything like that, but you know, this guy has kind of put stuff out there, so I'll just give him a shout. And we jumped on Skype because it was 2017, and. Um, and then it just went from there. He put me in touch with somebody else. He was like, oh, you should talk to such and such. And then she would. And then it just, it all really just, um, it's like, a it's a really tight-knit community, you know. So you know one person and you know everybody.
2: It's really interesting there, Laura, the way you describe so well your first reaction when you started watching it and started looking it up on the internet and, and trying to hold your own breath as you're watching divers do it. That sensation is something that you... It's exactly the way you open the movie. The first few minutes of the movie is just this this one long dive, which takes you right into the heart of of everything that that's that's good and bad and you know beautiful and scary about this world. It's all in there mm-hmm. in the first few minutes, yeah,
5: it was the only way to couldn't start anywhere else because until you knew all the things that you find out in those first three minutes. There was, there was no point in starting the story anywhere until you understood what free diving is, until you've been on the journey with the diver and you've spent the time. We couldn't have cut together a really like anything. You know, here's an example of what freediving looks like. You needed to hold your breath. You needed to have that experience that I had, which was you feel the CO2 build up in your lungs and you're testing yourself and you're on this journey with her. And it had to be time. You had to spend the exact length of time that she spends traveling down and then traveling back and the journey that you go on. Like I remember watching in competitions after 2017, I think it was 2021. We went over to Vertical Blue, but we went over just after the competition started. So I was watching it on YouTube on my telly before it kicked, before I went over there. So I was watching it live and I was watching it with this drone. So I didn't know I was in that position where I didn't know what was going to happen. This was happening live. Anything could have occurred. And it was in that moment that I was like. This needs to be the audience experience. This just has Mm. to. It's the the most impactful way I've ever watched free diving. Um, And then, of course, you do also get your head around the stakes as well. What's at stake? And you put it really well, nicely there. You know, you get the beauty of it. You get the euphoria. You get the beautiful colours and then the darkness. The and-
2: quietness. Yeah, the quietness is one of the most amazing parts of that opening sequence. It's just so deathly quiet down there.
5: Yeah, and, and we did a lot of work with the sound design, you know, trying to create that, like, audio journey, I suppose.
2: Oh, it's a huge part
3: of the I think it's a huge part of the appeal of the movie, actually, is the quality of the sound of... Just everything sounds incredible in the water,
5: and that was a, like that was all created. You know, none of that was um, well. You know, some some bits of rough handling GoPro is, is real, uh, but it's the there was a real soundscape that we worked with the people in Molinaire uh, with with a really great team in Molinaire on on the sound and creating a mood, you know, for the sea and for um for the diver. And and the mood will change, you know, throughout, throughout a dive. And you've got, you know, what does 10 meters of pressure sound like? What does 20 meters of pressure sound like? What does 70 meters of pressure sound like? What does your heart, you know, if you block your ears, you kind of hear your heartbeat, you know, and they can hear that and it's slowing down to that of, like, a Tibetan monk, like, really, really low. And we wanted to use that. You know, we wanted to use every little piece, but we also wanted to use the quiet because that is the special thing about it. Um, Like Christoph says in the film, and I love this quote, he says, you put your head in, you put your face in the water and all the shit from daily life just fades away. And and the sound is a lot, of, like, that. a lot of that is sound as well. Like, right now I can hear your man cutting the hedge outside, you know, can hear bits and bobs and there's nothing. There's just, yeah, it's special. And it's hard to, and, and it deserved to be kind of like, you know, emphasised in this because would, yeah, we would have been missing the trick if we didn't, for sure.
2: I think you've touched on a question a lot of us would have watching this, the, the appeal to these people of doing this sport. Is it clear to you, though, why they choose free diving? Because some of the stuff you showed, the blackouts are just... Absolutely awful to watch, really. I watched it again last night and it's just, even though you know what's coming, it's still so difficult those moments when things like that happen. Is it clear to you why this community choose this particular sport despite knowing those dangers?
5: You know, you've just touched on something there that I've never thought to mention before. It's, they're worse to look at than they are to experience. Blackouts. Right? So if if I had a blackout now, And then I came to in about 20 seconds. The only reason I'd know that I maybe not 20 seconds, maybe seven or eight seconds. The only way I'd know that I had a blackout was A, I'd be on the floor. But B, um, I'd have this sensation of waking up. And that's how Alessia knows she's had a blackout. Not that she experiences anything when she's blacked out, but she suddenly wakes up and she's like, oh, shit, I was asleep. So it's not that traumatic for the person involved. It's pretty traumatic to look at. To see. It's not something we're used to seeing. When I saw a blackout for the first time in Vertical Blue, um, you know, having seen it on videos over the course of a couple of years, it was quite kind of shocking. Um so I think the fact that like it's it's not that bad for the person's part of it, but like free diving look, there's a million reasons. The people, the, the people in the community, they're not the people that follow the rules. They're not the people that kind of, you know, they're on their own path. They're finding their own way through this world. And somehow they've stumbled upon freediving. There's a beautiful kind of meditativeness, There's an escapism to it. There's a, you know, that, I try to get it into the film in some way. And, and, and the way the the moment that I, kind of used to do it was when Stephen was saving Alexei and he's waiting for him to come up uh, and he's waiting there, you know, in Calmata for like a minute. Um, And of course, there's no shots of him waiting from the day because nobody films the safety diver, you know, you're only poised waiting for the diver to come back up. So we had the opportunity to go to Mexico and shoot um, a diver waiting on a rope. At We wanted them to be at, what is it? He's at 30 and he goes to 40. I think we did it a little bit shallower just for ease. Um, but we made sure that you couldn't see the surface on the top and you couldn't see the seabed on the bottom. And you just see this, t- and it was a big wide, you see this, dive, this tiny little diver just in the middle. And I wanted to kind of capture that kind of, that speck of dust feeling you know, that the universe is this massive thing around you and you are so small and powerless. And that was, I think that's a massive part of the appeal for the free divers is that just kind of, yeah, that acceptance of your place in the universe and and that quietness, Um <laughs> the free fall is is a massive thing. And it's it's probably I've kind of settled this probably something that I won't ever experience myself. But Alessia describes it so beautifully. You get to thirty meters and the pressure so you know if you're if you drop your goggles in the pool, right? And if it's if you're down the deep end, you have to kind of work quite hard to get down to get them because you're pushing against the pressure of the water. Whereas if you you have to work quite hard to get down to about 10, 20, 30, once you get to 30 metres, the pressure above you actually pushes you down so you can relax. You can just put your hands by your side, not kick your legs. And that pressure above your head will push you all the way down to the bottom of the sea if that's where you want to go. Um now, some people that might sound kind of scary, but look, like, these people don't wake up on a Tuesday morning, you know, and decide they're going to go to 100 meters on a Wednesday morning. This is done over years and years. So they know how they feel at 10 meters, at 40 meters, at 42 meters. You know, they might spend six months adding five meters to a to a, their personal best. Um But what I hear is that that sensation is like flying. It's like flying underwater. And... I think that's a big appeal as well.
2: And they accept the dangers that go with it or even embrace the dangers, is it fair to say, Laura? Because it's not just blackouts, there's also something called lung squeeze that's described in the movie, which, you know, the compression of of lungs that can happen and that can uh, also... Get worse over time, which which sounds sounds very scary and dangerous. I mean, the crux of your story happens around a place called the Blue Hole in Dahab in Egypt, which is described as the most dangerous dive site in the world. There's literally plaques to people in and around the the Blue Hole to people, all the many people who've died there, and yet. Divers still go there and still take that challenge on, so do they just do, do they is is a danger a part of the appeal a part of the excitement, or is it just a byproduct that they have to accept comes with the deal
5: I think it's a bit of both it would be it would be probably like unfair to say that it's not a little bit part of it like walking that line you know is it makes you feel alive, you know. Having to be so focused. If you're close to that line, you have to be one hundred percent focused. And there's a there's an appeal there to that kind of to having to have that kind of focus. Um, But at the same time, it's not an adrenaline sport. You know, it's the it's quite the opposite. And if you go to a competition, or if you go to the Blue Hole, there's safety divers. Well, especially at a competition, obviously. You've got the medics, you've got a massive, um, you've got a, a a safety team in the water, safety team out of the water. You've got a safety team uh, or a medic on the or two on the platform. And then you'll have other people, other medics on the beach. They do. They're aware of the risks. You know, they do everything that they can to to mitigate them. And to, if if something happens that you've got all the support around you that you need to uh to bring you back. The lung squeeze is um is something that happens when a diver is pushing themselves you know trying to trying to improve their personal best or maybe they're not you know maybe they've got a bit of a cold or a sinus issue and that can give you a squeeze as well. Um it's the repetitiveness if you're constantly having lung squeezes that build up over time can be problematic yeah in the future but it is something they're aware of the risks they're adults and they do their best I believe to um, to keep themselves safe they want to go home and have their dinner in the evening as well you know
2: How happy were the family were Stephen's family with the portrayal of him in the movie?
5: Um, Yeah so we I suppose making this film I was always deeply aware of the sensitivity around the whole story for Stephen's family, for Alessia, for Alessia's family, for Stephen's friends. Um. So every decision I made, I would always divert to to Peter, and to Alessia in my head. You know, I'd say, right? How, how do you how do you how do you think they're going to feel about this? Um. And so sitting down, uh, myself and Jamie. Uh, Dalton from Motive and Anne, Anne and Jamie are motive. Motive. Um, I brought it to them first and then we brought it to John batsick in um, in London. Right. So myself and Jamie sat down with Peter and Gary, Stephen's brother and Elaine, Stephen's stepmom, and some of their family friends in Peter's house. Um, and we were so nervous. Like we were so nervous because like we and Peter had always said this to us as well. He was like, "Do you know, like, Nobody's a saint, you know. Stephen wasn't a saint. Nobody's a saint. So, you know, he was aware of 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 the fact that we're not trying to kind of um, sugarcoat the dangers or sugarcoat the the you know the lifestyle. Um, so I wanted to be fair. I wanted to be honest. I wanted to show what what I saw. I wanted to be fair, and but I also wanted to or Peter, you know, to to enjoy it. Um. And and we we walk that line of of um, of fairness the whole time, the whole time and just being honest. And that's what and that's what the film is. And 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 Peter really appreciated that. Like, and that's what he said afterwards. He was like, you know what? It was fair. Like it was what I see there is the is the son that I had. You know, that's him. So that was massively um, a massive relief for us. Obviously, it was hard for him to watch. Obviously, like, there was like we sat down in his house and said, look, Peter, there's, there's a moment here when Stephen has his blackout in Kalamata. Um, I said, you don't have to watch this if you don't. There's bits of it if you want to skip over. I can just tell you what happens and you don't have to watch it. And he was like, and obviously the accident at the end. And he said, no, look, you know, I need to kind of see what it is. If everyone else is going to be watching it, you know, I need to have watched it. And then bringing it to Alessia. So we brought Alessia on the Thursday. Jesus Christ, that was some week like we were just so stressed. So myself and John Batsik and Sarah Thompson went over to Rome and we sat down with Alessia and Enzo, her dad, and her boyfriend, Maro, uh, in her sitting room. And we watched it. And um, I was almost more nervous for Alessia's viewing because there's a lot tied up for her in this. You know, there's survivor's guilt, you know, which is massive for her. And I uh, took the same approach with her, that kind of, you know, just an honest portrayal. And there's some moments in Alessia's story, you know, of Vertical Blue when she's upset and stuff where, you know, she's not particularly proud of that either. It's not not a massive deal, but, you know, it's there and you can see it. Um, And after we we took a moment after it finished and uh, everyone else kind of left the room, myself and Alessia sat down on the couch and she gave me a big hug and I just burst out crying and she burst out crying and we just sat there hugging each other crying for about 15 minutes and she said thank you that was the first words out of her mouth she said thank Mm -hmm. you and I cried even more then Um, but later on in the day she um, said to me look will you get me a DVD or something of this because I want to show it to my coach and some of my friends because people don't really understand a lot of people don't really understand what this was all about this thing that happened to me in my life and this explains it really well and this saves me having to kind of go into it with everybody. And I was like, well, look, Jesus Christ, I was just so glad to to be able for this film to do something for her. Do you know what I mean? She had given so much to, to this project. She had, you know, she opened up, she really went there with us to hard places and, you know, the fact that she could get anything back from it, meant a lot to me because I was very grateful to her
3: you've already kind of said that uh like you'd loved at the beginning of it to have played the documentary as it as it turned out that you met it and then the archive made that made that kind of a- ambition of yours uh, a possibility that you could use but I'm just kind of curious as to how much more complicated that made the telling of the story because obviously it you know it's like, it packs the most unbelievable punch, obviously, and it, like, it works to the extent that it's watched by 50 million people inside the first 28 days. So, like, it works hugely, but it obviously also presented major challenges to you because you couldn't present Alessia as, like, a living on-screen presence saying, here I am in 2023 or 2022 or whatever, presenting my memories of how, uh, of how a certain incident played out.
5: Yeah, that was the biggest challenge. You know, that was the biggest challenge to to try and find enough quality archive of Alessia um, to to bring her to life on the screen, and also the same for Stephen. Quality observational stuff and interviews. You know, to see them walking around on the, in the frame. Um, it was a massive challenge and it was it it was a, it was also a massive gamble. And the, our producers were really, you know, they were very trusting and they took that punt as well. They were like, it would be amazing to be able to tell this story in the moment. You know, there's other options that we can fall back on if we have to, but we're going to aim for this first. Um, and so it did take kind of years, years and years. And we do have, she actually is in there a little bit. Um, you know uh, her voice is there you know once or twice um but there was a lot of material I've heard there was a lot of other interviews that we could call on um but it was a massive it was a massive challenge
3: yeah and like not a voiceover either you know like the, you know like you did actually manage to do it all through the archive you know and you know even, i mean, like was a, a a narrator even considered like even just to fill like the the tiny bits of string that are required to to piece it all together
5: no well we no a narrator was never never an idea that we had um we had it, okay so we'd 15 interviewees overall okay and how we would kind of figure out who because we could have interviewed 150 people um so obviously the budget didn't allow for that, right? <laughs> so, and also in a film, you like to have a small, and 15 is actually quite a lot of people.
3: Mm.
5: Um, uh, You want to have as small a number as possible really talking to you or, or having to get to know. And so what I would do is I knew what the story was after about a year, you know, of, you know, talking to people and writing story documents and scripts and figuring out this is the story. And it's like, okay, who can speak to as many of these moments as possible? So so say Christoph, you know, for example, Stephen's friend, he was able to speak to when Stephen started freediving. And actually that was a bit of a challenge because he was many people that could speak to that exact moment. A lot of people he had met later, but yeah. he could speak to that and he could speak to Kalamata and he could speak to a couple of other moments. So it was that was kind of how we we figured out how to bridge those gaps. You know, we don't have a recording of Stephen talking about Kalamata. So so Christoph tells us about it. So there was little techniques like that that we used um to fill in those little gaps. Yeah, the cast is just like they were there such a, you know, you could sit and listen
2: to them forever. Yeah, I know it's not fair to pick favourites, but Alessia's dad is my favourite. <laughs> He's one of these people who manages to say things that seem quite simple and yet quite profound at the same time. And then obviously the gut punch is when he says, I'd give my life for Stephen. Just an extraordinarily emotive and generous thing to say about the man who saved his daughter.
5: So Enzo was the last interview that we did And it was really—he's such a massive part of the film. So we—it was the last. Enzo was like the last piece of the puzzle for this all, this whole thing to come together. But but he doesn't speak any English whatsoever, and I don't speak any Italian whatsoever. So I, with everybody else I would do, because they're in other countries, we do long Zoom interviews where we chat and figure out, you know, what they know and different stories. And so I pretty much knew what everyone was going to, the, the different stories that they were going to cover in the interviews. Um, and I did one call with Alessia and, and her dad Enzo, but like Alessia sitting beside him. So, yeah. you know, he wasn't really able to chat too freely and she was also translating for him. So, you know, it was a short enough call. So going into the end of the interview, I had no idea what it was going to be like at all. Um, and and so we I was sitting in his hallway behind the door. We had our translator, Claudia, was sitting in front of him and he was answering to her. So I would ask the question in English. She would repeat it in Italian. He'd answer in Italian and she would. Oh, sorry, we would another translator in the back room in my ear giving me the english version of what enzo was saying right so that was the setup and enzo was like his whole interview his whole interview was like that he was so thoughtful just just full of wisdom yeah and and um has and 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 for the very reason that we wanted to interview him he has been through so much you know, he has watched his daughter go to 100 metres, disappear into the darkness. And he'd have to wait and he's uh, for her to come back. And he's been doing this for years. And that takes you've got to be, you know, that's a lot. That's that's as a parent, you know. And you can see that he's had to do a lot of work to kind of be able to accept that that's what his, his daughter, who he adores, uh, does. And also, one of the things I learned in the middle of the project was that um, the families had never been in touch with each other. They'd never met. They'd never spoken, you know, Stephen's family and Leslie's family. And so one of the things I wanted to ask Enzo, and it was one of my very last questions was, what would you say to Peter, you know, if you um, if he was here now? And that, and his answer to that question was, well, "I would give my life for Stephen." And when Peter saw that, he was really, really touched by it. Really touched, and he reached out to Enzo, to Alessia's family straight away. And a couple of months later, they went over to Rome and they spent the weekend together. And they they had that connection for the first time, and it was from hearing. Enzo say that, that Peter just felt like, okay, this, you know, he gets it. Well,
2: that's that's amazing to hear, Laura. That must be so beautiful f- for you. You know, it's not just that this thing has become this big success and people around the world have watched it, but that personal um, that personal connection that happens there, that doesn't, I don't know how many projects anyone ever works on that creates that kind of thing.
5: Yeah. And you can't, you know, this, 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 that kind of thing just happens by accident. You know, that kind of thing just happens organically. And yeah. you'd always hope that, you know, you can bring some kind of something to the people that are in your project. You know, especially these people in this project who've been through so much and are such wonderful, good human beings, you know, you always hoped that but he, he's not something you can orchestrate you know yeah. it's just something that either happens or it doesn't yeah
2: We should say congratulations on some recent award nominations the, the movie's been nominated for four Critics' Choice Awards which is a massive deal in its own right and also can can be seen as an indicator of possible Oscar nominations down the line I don't want to put any pressure Laura but you know I'm sure this might have been mentioned to you at some point in the last while what do you reckon <laughs>
5: has been mentioned yeah i've also watched the other films that are that are contenders and they're incredible There's there's a really incredible bunch of films this year so look isn't it isn't it amazing to be in the same sentence and if that's all it that is then i'd be super chuffed so um no for sure we'll take it
2: all with a pinch of salt <laughs> yeah no well for now anyway laura we we wish you well over the next no, few we're months. we're getting excited on your yeah behalf. we're going <laughs> we're going yeah, right. we're going to campaign <laughs> well, listen, we listen we did a bit of work together years about 10 years ago in the very early days of second captain. so we're we're on your side yeah, in the Oscars yeah. fight here, Laura's Great to see you that doing so. That is the well.
3: most pathetic, literally the most pathetic. Uh, uh, try, try to
6: gra- I'm just trying to grab get a bit of glory by association. I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genuinely <laughs> okay. pathetic. I mean,
2: this is kind of a, this movie's kind of a second captain's production, is what I'm saying. Yeah. It is in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, much inspired
3: yeah,
5: we're, we're,
2: by you
3: guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to say it comes under the second captain's yeah. tree. You know, yeah, like yeah, you know, exactly. there is, there's
2: like I our, filmed
5: our, you. You were the first people that I, not the first people that I filmed, but yeah, I did shoot a little bit of your show for something yeah. was it yeah it yeah. was
3: the, it was the pilot for the first pilot for our TV show the sweatiest
2: uh, most disorganised uh, event
3: in the history of so Second sweaty. Captain it,
2: yeah, was, it was, was a hot was. day the air, the air con yeah. we weren't allowed to like put the aircon on because of the oh, listen there was it was of a course, tough night yeah, so you, yeah, did well, you did well you um... did well to get any good filming out of that one Laura that's, that, we, we should have <laughs> realised <laughs> that you could handle go that great things yeah yeah, yeah if yeah. you could handle that you could do other things that's it yeah Laura great to talk to you and well done again in the movie thanks Amelia.
3: National, and uh, I just can't believe we won. It's unbelievable. behind the songwriter is Gay Vaughan, and for
0: sale behind for is Charlotte Brew. Just taking the water, getting a cheer from the crowd as going down out into the country. Boom, Dockers.
1: I'm
2: not in favour of these girls going down To the truth, they're not as strong as a man. They can't possibly be. It's not a girls.
1: Charlotte Brew and Barony Ford are way out of contention and doggedly soldiering on. Is this your first winner? Yeah.
3: Talk us through that race dear. now. (laughs) We went really well and couldn't believe it.
0: but over the last in the national, it is Manella Times who leads them towards the elbow. Three or four lengths clear from ridden in second place, Balca to Flow. any Second now and Barrow Sate. Rachel Blackmore heads towards the elbow with 200 yards between herself and an entry victory. Balcunder Flow and any Second now are about five lengths down, 150 yards to go. Manella Times, Rachel Blackmore still five lengths clear. And it is Manella Times who is keeping up the gallop towards the line many other times Rachel Blackmore raises
2: the bar still higher
0: only from rustolium
2: Before we wrap things up for today, Murph, there is a high-profile GA retirement this week. I mean, there often is around this time of year, but Aaron Kernan. Yeah.
3: Uh, I mean, what a career this guy had. 23 seasons playing with uh, the CrossFit senior football team. And let me tell you, when he was coming on that uh, team as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, they were pretty bloody handy. So uh, to play at that level for that long, 18 county titles... uh, six Ulsters and three All Ireland club titles. Um and it was just it was interesting he was on um uh Colin Parkinson's smaller fish podcast uh, just this morning actually and uh, he made a point that uh I kind of knew I- in my head to be true but it was interesting for him to make the point that he actually he uh retired from uh, Armagh at the age of 30 so he was he's had 10 years since his uh, intercounty retirement to play at an extremely high level with club with his club and one maybe doesn't happen without the other you know that he he retired at a time when he was still in pretty decent shape he was kind of being he maybe didn't get the game time he thought he deserved that year walked away from it because he just got married his son had uh, first son had just been born um and that really has actually
2: massively helped his longevity at club level. You're just looking at every, you're just looking at every GA story now through the prism of chapters (laughs) in your book. Well... Trying to vindicate yourself because in your Lions in Winter one, th- th- this is precisely the point you make that maybe people shouldn't want to see the intercounty player play on too long and get flogged at that level. Listen, own enjoy them playing for their club for a little longer.
3: The fact that my book is still available in all good bookstores and coming up to Christmas, it's an ideal gift idea. It's literally not what I came here to talk <laughs> about. Oh, you know, uh, I'm just I'm just answering the questions you ask. If you know by virtue of the fact that you know, as I'm answering him, some some of the issues dealt with in This Is The Life released by Penguin Sandy Cove, you know, do come up. Well, then that's that's only natural on. I'm just writing about my own personal experience. In the same way that I'm talking to you, about my own personal experience. So, Aaron Kernan, happy retirement. Elsewhere in the Ulster uh, Club Championship, Kilku were beaten by Scotstown. Uh, Rory Beggin uh, <laughs> hitting some of the most ridiculous points you've ever seen. But that was a big, big shock. Uh, And the fact that Scottsdale have taken out uh, Kilku means, well, uh, that is one of the major big hitters for the, Mm -hmm. as possible, all-Ireland club champions uh, have been taken out. And, um, you know, I wish Kilku the best, you know, I hope they rest, recuperate
2: and come back in 2024. That's all I'll say. Well, if people want to read your Irish Times column, they'll find a few more thoughts on (laughs) Kilku. But listen, we need to get this podcast out. Because there's a lot of lot of good stuff in it, so we'll leave it there. Thanks, thank for you, on. F- thank you, Ken. Thank you. Oh, Thanks, thank Ken. You. Thanks for listening. Look forward to chatting tomorrow. If you're a signed up member of the World Service on secondcaptains.com. it's only a five or a month plus VAT. If you want to hear podcasts each day, and don't forget, the Second Captains podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.
0: What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They
4: never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's the persuade there's a world
3: outside of that. That's why sport's important.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.